0: All right, if you would turn to 1 John chapter 5, my little pep talk brought a few extra people out tonight, so uh, we'll see how you do. 1 John chapter 5, and uh, nearing the end of this letter, and we'll be looking at verse 13 through uh, 19 this evening. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Amen. Well, <clears throat> verse 13 is, in a sense, the conclusion of the letter. There are those who feel that what comes after 13 is a postscript, maybe an application, uh, but... Uh, it's, it's kind of a transition verse. It sort of concludes what came just prior to it. And it, uh, then sort of wraps up the letter. He says that in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. This verse thirteen is kind of a parallel <clears throat> to those verses which we have encountered before. Uh, encountered them last Sunday morning, and um, before the week before that Sunday evening, I quoted them. But anyway, look at it again, John twenty thirty. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so what follows back in 1 John 5, what follows verse 13 is, if we know that we have eternal life, then there are certain things that are true in our lives. That's kind of what follows that verse and there are three things that we'll see in the in this section. Uh, we have confidence in prayer, which is verses fourteen to nineteen. We have uh, understanding of the true God, which is verse twenty, and we keep ourselves from idols, which is verse twenty one. <clears throat> Excuse me. Tonight we're going to look at this uh, thought that we have confidence in prayer, and that's what's in verses fourteen. 19. So look at the first part of it. Uh, In verses 14 and 15, he's affirming this point that God hears and answers our prayers. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Confidence is a significant idea in the book of First John, in this letter, uh, and let me have you look at them. There's it's it's repeated. This is the fourth time. <clears throat> so to look look back at First John two twenty eight. First John two twenty eight says, "And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, you, we may have confidence." and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So the confidence is uh, to meet Jesus when he returns. And then if you jump ahead to chapter 4, verse 17, <clears throat> 4, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So there's confidence again, for the day of judgment, when we're meeting Christ. But then if we go back to chapter 3, verse 21, 1 John three twenty-one, it's the theme of confidence in prayer again. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So here in First John five fourteen, he returns to the topic of confidence in prayer. <clears throat> and what he's wanting you and I to know is that we can be absolutely confident that God hears our prayers, and then verse 15 follows up with that. And if he hears our prayer, we know that we'll have what we've asked of him. So we're confident that he hears us, and we're confident that he will answer us. But there is a condition. Just as there's a condition in three twenty-one and 22, we know what we have, what we've asked of him because we keep his commandments. Here it is, that we know we have confidence toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now this is where the skeptic would quickly jump in and say, aha, see, there's the fine print that God is going to use so that he doesn't have to answer your prayer. Uh, he's, He's tricking you, you see. That he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, but you need to ask according to his will. And so the skeptic, he belittles the promise of God and says that God is tricking you. Um you have to ask whatever is according to his will. But the true believer understands prayer is not for us to control God. It's for us to align our desires with his. And the Christian knows that when they pray to the Father, hallowed be thy name, And when they pray, thy kingdom come, and they pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they know beyond any shadow of doubt that God will always, unfailingly, answer those prayers. We know that whatever we've asked of him, he hears us and we will receive what we've asked. its It um, can be a painful re- realization that we pray, thy will be done. But we see it in our Savior, Jesus Christ. He cried out to, to God, and it's appropriate for us to cry out to God <clears throat> with the burdens that we carry. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the Son of God did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, nevertheless, not as my will, but as your will be done. And so it's not a trick. It's a a genuine and meaningful uh, statement of prayer. And almost, maybe all, nearly all the universal Promises of prayer, ask whatever you wish in my name and it will be done to you, come with the reminder that we need to pray according to God's will. And so we have, but we do really have confidence in our prayers. We know that God hears us and we know that he will answer whatever we ask of him. So that's what's in verses 14 and 15 that we have confidence in prayer for our needs, our concerns, uh, our burdens. But now what begins in verses 16 and 17, or and what is in verses 16 and 17 is, he's telling us here we need to pray about our fellow Christians. And in particular, we pray for our fellow Christians who are committing sin, who are struggling with sin, wrestling with sin, and I'm quite confident, almost willing to bet something of serious value, that you will not agree with me tonight. Um, I know some of you won't agree with me, maybe many of you won't agree with me, but I want to make this statement before we get to what you won't agree with, and We have to keep in mind what's the dominant theme here, the point. We get caught up in where we're struggling, but there's a dominant point that we cannot overlook, and that is it's great to pray for your own concerns, and you could have confidence in doing that, but another responsibility that you and I have is we must pray for our brothers and sisters. In this case, in particular, when they're struggling with sin. But we are, that's the theme. We need to pray not just for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters. We need to pray for them. That's our calling. That's our responsibility. Not just pray for ourselves, <clears throat> but pray for others. And we're praying for them as John highlights it here in these verses specifically about those who are struggling with sin. Now, we want to jump to the phrase, there is a sin that leads to death. You want the answer to that. That's only stated one time in this whole passage. In these two verses, it's only once that's mentioned. But three times you're told to pray for your brother because of a sin that does not lead to death. So what's the dominant thought? Quit playing around with trying to figure out what's the sin that leads to death. Your responsibility is to pray for your brother or sister when they're struggling with sin. That's the dominant thing. That's stated three times. The exception is just once. And some of the authors I'll read that will say, we get caught up in the exception. We need to focus on the main point. And the main point is that we pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin. That's the, the thing. Whether we figure the other thing out or not is were almost, almost irrelevant. The responsibility we have is very, very clear. And that's the point that he wants us to draw our attention to. And as we work our way through these two verses, there are six questions that are important for us to think about uh, that are geared toward the exception, but they're important things for us to think about anyway. Uh, The the six questions are these. First, who is the brother? How do you define that? Second, what is a sin not leading to death? What's that talking about? Third, what is death? Is it a physical death or is it a spiritual death? What's he talking about? What is life? Is it physical life or is it spiritual life? The uh, fifth question is, then what is the sin that leads to death? And then sixth, what is sin? So I want to work through these questions, and I'll be giving you my point of view along the way, <clears throat> but these are the things you need to wrestle through as you're studying this passage, as you're thinking about it. So the first thing, uh, who is the brother? Uh, is it a brother in name only? Uh, In other words, it's a person who carries the label of Christian, the label of brother, but they're not really born again. They have, they don't have, they've not been regenerated. They don't have a new heart. The heart of stone hasn't been taken out and the heart of flesh put into them. And uh, one of the authors that I'll read calls them pseudo-Christians, false Christians. In other words, they have the label, but they're not really genuine believers. And if you look back at 1 John 2.19, this is a category in John's letter. Speaking of false teachers in particular, he says in 1 John 2.19, "...they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are, they are all are not of us." <clears throat> John Stott kind of expands it just slightly, saying, brother here in this verse is like a neighbor, um, just a, a person you know. How we define brother really does impact the rest of what we'll, what we'll come up with here. <clears throat> and so there are those who believe it just is a, a brother in name only. So when they're committing a sin that leading to death, it's spiritual death. That becomes the definition, Clearly. <clears throat> even though they're already dead spiritually. They're already dead spiritually, but they're committing sins that further their darkness. Uh, but in my opinion, in this letter, the, the concept that there is a brother in name only is true. But in, in this letter, it seems to me that the, the, the use of brother in this letter is a reference to a born-again Christian. A brother who is has a new heart, <clears throat> who has been regenerated. Even as he said in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so the brother, we could define it, we could see it as uh, the, the person who is a, a genuine believer, who's born again. <clears throat> And so we're praying for them. Uh, Not the brother in name only, but the brother who's a genuine believer. And so that um, impacts our thinking about some of the rest of these questions. Um, I'm going to kind of pass over the second question is, what is a sin not leading to death? To go to the question, well, what is death? Uh, what, is it physical death or is it spiritual death? Well, if the person is not a Christian or if he's a brother in name only, <clears throat> not a true, genuine Christian, when the, then obviously it uh, more than likely is spiritual death that he's talking about. Uh, that this person who doesn't know the Lord, uh, is he's already dead in his trespasses and sins, but he's descending further into darkness of his sin. If this is a genuine Christian who's born again, regenerated, it can't be spiritual death. Because what we would be saying if it's spiritual death and the person is truly a Christian is that they can lose their regeneration. That is that the heart of flesh in them that God put in there can be taken out and the heart of stone can be put back in. And so this is why I tend to say that this is physical death. That there are consequences to to sin. And sometimes there are dramatic consequences to sin that lead to physical death and um, results of that <clears throat> uh, so then on the other the, today, the next question what is life is it physical life or spiritual life well obviously if it's the person who's not a Christian you're praying for them to be born again <clears throat> you're praying for them to have life have spiritual life uh, we pray that for our uh, loved ones and friends all the time God may you change their heart. But if it is a true Christian, then we're praying uh, that um, God would, it's a sin that doesn't lead to death. We're praying that God would protect them. Uh, It's interesting when John says, um, there is a sin that leads to death. I don't tell you to pray for that. He's not forbidding you to pray about that. He's just saying, he's just not commanding you to pray about that. Something to think about. A possible example of a sin that leads to death would be in a a biblical um, thought is Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They committed a sin, and I'm assuming they're believers. There would probably be those who would argue that they weren't. But just assuming they're believers, they committed a sin, they lied against, they lied to the Holy Spirit. And God carried out consequences for that sin and their lives <clears throat> were taken. Uh, there are, perhaps we can think of examples where people committed a sin and it had certain consequences, physical consequences, maybe a, uh, an illness, maybe a drug addiction that gets them wrapped up in um the decay of their life that leads ultimately to their death. Um, It's a meager illustration. And don't know for sure if that would fit. But nevertheless, there could be a sin that would lead to physical death, consequences of those sins. But the dominant thought again is that we pray for our brothers and sisters in the situation of a sin that does not lead to death that's again three times the sin uh, that leads to death is only one time and then he goes on and I'll come back to this and some of the things I'll read to you but um, he goes on to define sin what is sin and his <clears throat> sin is unrighteousness uh, it's parallel to the definition. If you look back at 1 John 3, 4, uh, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So John, John is summing up everything that's related to our praying for our brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin, that all sin is unrighteousness. And among all that sin... That is unrighteousness or lawlessness. Uh, the majority of it is sins that don't lead to death. To death. And that's what we're praying for. <clears throat> and, uh, we wrestle with that other point, but, um, it's primarily our focus on praying for those struggling with sin that don't, does not lead to death. <clears throat> then I want to just cover 18 and 19. These verses, some would put on in a new topic category. I think they're part of uh, the confidence that John is encouraging us in praying specifically for our brothers and sisters struggling with sin. Uh, So I think they're part of the same topic. The first thing he says in verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Present tense, it's a continual thing. Why are we confident to pray for our brothers? Because those who truly know the Lord won't continue indefinitely forever in their sin. It's not teaching perfectionism, it's not teaching that we'll ever reach a point where we don't struggle with sin. Really, the teaching is that a believer will always struggle with their sin. They'll never be content. I mean, there may be a period periods of time in their life when they ignore it, and that's why we pray for them. But they will not continue on sinning in without regard for God and what he demands of them. They'll never be comfortable in their sin. They'll always do battle with sin. And so we pray for them who are struggling with sin because we know that in their heart, as a regenerated believer, they won't want to continue in sin. The last part of verse 18, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Again, the, the, the brother that's born again is protected by God. And the evil one can't overwhelm him. It doesn't mean that the struggle with sin and the battle against sin won't be fierce. It will sometimes be extremely fierce. But why can we be confident to pray for them? Because we know they're in the hand of God. And God will ultimately bring them through it. So we're confident to pray for our brother who's committing a sin that does not lead to death. And then the verse 19 is again a reaffirmation of the identity of our brother. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the, the power of the evil one. <clears throat> He's looking at his own identity, but it's also the identity, identity of the uh, fellow believer. We are from God. And he draws out that contrast again between the world and the Christian. Uh, the um, The world lies in darkness. The world lies under the power of the evil one. But we are from God. There's a dramatic difference between us and the world. And that gives us confidence to pray. You know, you have loved ones who are walking a path of sin. And it overwhelms you. Why are you confident you can continue to pray for them? Because you know if they're a true believer, they're in the hand of God. And God will ultimately do his work in them. And so you keep praying <clears throat> for them. Well, um, I want to read to you four excerpts from four different people who will give them, give their view of the, sin that leads to death. And um, you may not like what they say either, Um, but that's okay. At least you'll hear from other people. Uh, The first I want to read from is James Boyce. Uh, He talks about the different viewpoints of the sin that leads to death. He says the first one is that John is uh, referring to some particularly heinous sin, uh, which god so to speak will we are told will not pardon uh, some of the uh the blasphemy of the whole holy spirit that's comes up here well he brings that up in another view but it's a serious it's a heinous sin that god won't forgive a second view is that john is thinking of what we would call apostasy namely a deliberate repudiation of the christian faith by one who was who once was a christian and again that brings us into the dilemma if they're truly a christian we can't deny the scriptures that say God will hold on to them, so we have to say they're, they really were never really a Christian. The third view is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of people worry about that. Have I committed that sin? And he writes, just in relation to that, the major objection to this view is that it's hard to see how John could call such a hardened sinner a brother as he seems to do. So now he's going to give, and I'm going to read you his point of view. He says, the fact that none of the other explanations is entirely satisfactory leads one to wonder whether John may not be speaking just of physical death inflicted on a Christian by God as a result of the Christians persisting in some deliberate sin. Certainly, there are examples of such judgments. In speaking of the ministry of intercession, John may therefore be saying that in some cases, God will not turn back a physical judgment on one of his disobedient children, no matter how much another Christian prays. So he does not say that prayer must be made in such a situation, although we note he does not forbid it. The objection to this view is that life must mean spiritual life and that therefore death must mean spiritual death. But John is not necessarily making that distinction. Uh, For example, if the brother is a true Christian brother, then he is already alive spiritually. And the prayer that would be not so much that God would give him spiritual life, but that he might have life in abundance, as we might say. The difficulty with a discussion such as this is that it becomes strangely fascinating to certain Christians, so much so that they tend to spend all their time on the exception, the sin unto death, and not on the central message of the passage. Whatever the interpretation we give to the exception, therefore, we must always bear in mind that it is the exception and that the burden laid upon us by John is to pray for any believer whom we see falling into sin. <clears throat> and then from William Hendrickson, or maybe it's Simon Kistermarker, one of those two in the New Testament commentary series, uh, he said, We should never limit our prayers to personal needs. Rather, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we need to exercise our corporate responsibility to pray for each other especially when we notice a brother or sister committing a sin, we should pray to God for remission. And then he goes on. John distinguishes between a sin that does not lead to death and a sin that leads to death. In this passage, he mentions the first kind three times and the second only once. He clearly implies that praying for the sinner who commits a sin that does not lead to death is the intent of his writing. What is the meaning of the word death? In addition to 5.16, where it occurs three times, the word appears twice in 3.14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. John is not thinking of physical death. Rather, he is referring to spiritual death. He contrasts death with eternal life. uh, Set apart the believer who possesses this life, from the person who denies that Jesus is the Son of God and who hates the believer. Who then commits the sin that leads to death? The person who rejects Jesus as the Christ and who does not love the believer commits this sin. He does not share in the fellowship of the Father and the Son and is excluded from eternal life. He left the Christian community because he did not really belong to it. He had been a pretender. So he defines brother as a non-Christian. Samuel Waldron talks about this. And um, he says, The sin unto death has been frequently interpreted as referring to Christians who continue in sin, and thus are visited with physical death by a grieved father. Several conclusive objections may be brought forward against this interpretation. Firstly, the text says death, not premature physical death judgment. No, excuse me, not not, not premature physical death. Since all Christians die the physical death itself cannot be viewed as a judgment. Secondly, note the contrast between death in 1 John 5, 16 and 17 and the mention of eternal life in 5, 11 and 13 and the similar contrast in 1 John 3, 14 and 15. The contrast in view in this passage is not between physical death, excuse me, physical life and physical death, but eternal life and eternal death. Thirdly, the terms life and death in First John are never used of mere physical life and death. Fourthly, the immediate context contrasts those who have committed the sin unto death with those who are born of God and asserts that the truly regenerate cannot commit the sin unto death. Finally, the historical situation in which First John was written provides the clue for identifying those who committed the sin unto death Throughout 1 John, the writer was attacking the Gnostic pseudo-Christians, false Christians, who had apostatized from Christ and were doomed to destruction. The sin unto death is denying the gospel of Christ as the Gnostic pseudo-Christians had done. So he also is defining brother as a false Christian. They have the label, but they're not. <clears throat> really regenerate. So he, he, like all these writers, would agree with us that a true Christian cannot lose their regeneration. And that's one of the things we have to be sure we're clear on. And then the last quotes are from J. Adams in his book, For, From Forgiven to Forgiving. Um, he writes first about the Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. In attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to an unclean spirit, they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. This sin evidenced the very epitome of hardness to the truth of God. Persons who commit the unpardonable sin are, one, not Christians, and two, are never concerned about becoming Christians. They are persons who are opposed to Jesus Christ and think that what he stands for is the work of the devil. <clears throat> and then he goes on, he comes back to 1 John five sixteen. and you might look at your Bibles. Um, he translates it a different way. So you might want to have that in front of you as I read his translation. He says, 1 John 5, 16, this verse ought to be translated this way. If anybody sees his brother committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he shall pray for him. And he, will God, will give life to him. That is to those committing a sin that doesn't lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I don't say that you should ask questions about that. So before I read his words, so he's making a distinction between um, prayer and asking questions or inquiring about the sin that leads to death so he says two distinct words are used the first means to ask for something or pray for someone the second means to ask about or inquire about John is not saying that the Christian must determine whether a brother committed a sin that leads to death or not before he prays that God will give him life. And in his parenthesis, presumably to raise him from the sick bed. It is proper to pray for, it is proper to pray for his healing at all times. Don't trouble yourself to try to find out the details. Don't try to second guess God. Just go ahead and pray in all cases so I hope the distinction he's making is clear He he's interpreting brother to be a genuine Christian and he's telling you so he's making a contrast between prayer and I'll use a different word meddling in God's business you don't need to worry about whether they've committed the sin unto death I'm kind of Hopefully interpreting him properly. You don't have to worry about whether he, a believer, has committed a sin that leads to death. <clears throat> you don't have to ask about that or inquire about that. That seems to me to be the point that he's making. You just go ahead and pray for them. So, we come to the end, probably very unhappy, but the two dominant things we have to keep in mind is three, we can be confident when we come with our request to God that he will hear and he will answer. Secondly, we, are, we need to understand that our dominant responsibility is that another responsibility is that we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. And then specifically, we have to be in prayer for our brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin. And we can be confident as we pray for them that God will be at work in their lives. And so whether we figure out what life or death is, what the sin that leads to death is, we can see clearly what our calling is. And we can be confident in doing our calling. And that's really what John, I think, the burden of what John is saying is all about. He wants you to have the burden of not only praying for yourself, which is certainly one a fine thing to do, but pray for your brother and your sister. Especially pray for them when they're struggling with sin. That God will be at work in their life and in their heart. That's our calling. May we be faithful to it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for passages like this that cause us to wrestle and think through the meaning of of your word. We thank you that the, the calling that you're giving to us here is so very, very clear. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to be too overly disturbed by the part that doesn't seem clear to us but that we know what our calling is. Help us to be uh, confident prayers, not only for our own needs, but for the needs of our brothers and sisters, and particularly when they when we see that they're struggling with sin. May we pray earnestly for them, and we pray that you would be graciously at work in their life and um, restore them and renew them in your grace. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.